At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. online uh, for the first time. My name is Kurt McDonald. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, uh, and this morning it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Uh, This week we are beginning chapter 15, so let me just encourage you to go ahead and get that scripture out in front of you so that you're laying eyes on it as we go through it so you can make sure I'm not making it up as I go. Uh, We have seen uh, all kind of stuff from this crazy, crazy church in Corinth, have we not? I mean, we, we've seen so many uh, different things. We've seen divisions in the church where this person says, I'm of Paul. This person says, I'm of Apollos. Uh, we've seen sexual immorality. We've seen lawsuits. They were, they, in, instead of going and taking their problems to the church or letting their problems go all together, they were taking each other to court uh, in, in front of pagan judges. Uh, they, they had all kinds of jacked up marriages. They were eating in pagan temples, meaning they were trying to keep one foot in the church and one foot in the culture. Uh, We've seen so many different things. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, the the rich people were coming in. um, They had all kinds of stuff in their food baskets and bottles of wine, and they're eating and drinking. And then the people who had less uh, money in the congregation were going without. I mean, this church is messed up, not to mention uh, our, our long look at their abuse of spiritual gifts. I mean, this church has some real issues in it. Yet, the Apostle Paul has one overarching solution to all of their issues. I mean, this is a variety of issues, is it not? Again, divisions in the church, sexual immorality, lawsuits, jacked up marriages, eating in pagan temples. uh, I mean, all kind of this this variety of problems and issues. Yet Paul begins his letter with this big idea that has emphasis and runs through the rest of the letter. And then now as we reach chapter 15, we're closing out the letter and he's coming back to that same idea, the same idea that he began with, the same idea that he's ending with, the same idea that's been running through this entire book. And that is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is his solution to the diversity of their issues. Let's just look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just just flip back to chapter 2 as he's beginning the letter. Listen to what he says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. What's he saying there? He's saying he didn't try to impress them into Christianity. He, he wasn't trying to show off how smart he was or, or how eloquent he was. He, he, he came in without using lofty speech. Listen to what he says in verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As he opens up his letter, he wants to center them in the gospel. He wants to remind them that as I showed up, the first thing that I said to you guys, I told you about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, in In the NIV, it says, I resolved to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. He he decided that this was going to be his main message. This is going to be what underlies everything that he says and does. This is the overarching thing that he's going to keep coming back to. That is 
the gospel. He resolved to know nothing. So Paul begins his letter by reminding them that when he showed up there, he had a laser focus on the gospel. He showed them, he reminded them, he reiterated it to them, he rehearsed it for them. He kept going back over and over and over and over again the truth of the gospel. And so as we begin to look at chapter 15, chapter 15 says this, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I mean, this is the bookends of his book and, and the story that runs all the way through, that is the message of the gospel. You see, there must be a great resolve in the heart of a preacher to keep reminding his people of the gospel week in and week out. I, I, I'm telling you, every time I step into the pulpit, I'm preparing my notes and, and I step in here, I think to myself, I said this last week. <laughs> and that's a good thing, Amen. It's a good thing for, to keep reminding you of the gospel, keep reminding you of the gospel. Here is the truth. You won't get bored of the gospel if you see the gospel for what it truly is. So, so, so there is this part of me that goes, man, I, I just said this last week. I just told them the gospel last week. I just reminded them of the gospel last week. Do I really need to do it again? I absolutely need to do it again because if you understand the truth, the beauty, the weight, the glory, the amazingness of the gospel, then it's easy for us just to keep talking about it over and over and over again. You see, the gospel is truly awe-inspiring, worthy of repetition, life-changing, beautiful, glorious, multifaceted. The gospel is worth a lifetime of study and dedication. The gospel gives us calls to rejoice and it also gives us calls to mourn. The gospel brings us to our knees before a holy God and then raises us up with him. The gospel shows us the horror and the depth of our sin and the oceans of grace that cover that sin. The gospel speaks in every aspect of our life. There is nothing in this universe that will ultimately be untouched by the power of the gospel. So Paul wants to remind them of the gospel. The truth is we need a deeper understanding of the gospel. We need to constantly be repeating the gospel and we need to constantly be applying the gospel to every aspect of our life. To say it another way, there will never be a time this side of eternity where we can say, I have fully grasped every aspect of the beauty of the gospel. I've heard it enough and I have applied it to every area of my life. We'll never be able to say that this side of eternity. We can constantly be going back to the gospel and seeing the multifaceted beauty of it. We can keep going back there, church family. We can keep going back. Not only that, as we keep going back to the beauty of it, we can be figuring out the multifaceted way that it needs to be applied to every single area of our life. The, the gospel speaks into my marriage. The gospel speaks into how I raise my children. The gospel speaks into what I do with my finances. And so we need to keep going back, keep going back, keep going back. Tim Keller says it this way. The, the gospel is not the ABCs of the faith. The gospel is the A to Z of the faith. Meaning this, once we learn the gospel, it's not as if we set the gospel aside and go into the Bible to find deeper Bible truths. Oh, no, church family, the gospel is the deepest Bible truth. And so we, we seek to learn more and more about it. So my task this morning is the same task I have every single week. It's just more clear. It's just more explicit. It's just more plain. My task this morning is to simply remind you of the gospel. Let's go back to the gospel, church family. You want to go back to the gospel and, and see it and peer into it and remind ourselves of its glory, of its majesty, and of its beauty? 
Here's what's happening uh, in this text. Paul is bringing this issue up. He, he has decided he wants to remind them of the gospel. If you, go back to, to 8.1. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. He says this, now concerning, now concerning food offered to idols. Look at the beginning of chapter 12. Now concerning, now concerning spiritual gifts. All throughout this letter, he has been addressing things that they had wrote to him about. He's done with that. Uh, he, now, whether or not they want him to remind them of the gospel, he's going to remind them of the gospel. Look at the beginning of 15. Now, I would remind you. That, that's a different way of saying it. So he's been saying, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. He's done talking about their stuff. He wants to talk about his stuff. He wants to remind them of the gospel. Now, I would remind you, and the big reason that he's doing this, just to give you an overarching big idea of this chapter, the reason that he's doing that is because he has heard that somebody in the church or some group of people in the church is not believing in a bodily resurrection. Look at verse 12 in chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some people in that church were saying there's no resurrection of the dead. There will be no bodily resurrection. So, so his point here is to remind them of the gospel Point to that great conclusion where Jesus resurrects from the dead before his ascension and remind them that if Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, then we too will bodily be raised from the dead. So he begins by reminding, hey, remember the gospel where Jesus defeated death? He shows that he defeats death by resurrecting in a physical body. That's the gospel. We're going to do the same thing. We will resurrect in physical bodies in order to be with him. That's the big idea of the chapter. My job is to remind you of the gospel. Let's get after it. Y'all want to? Can y'all tell I'm happy not to be talking on spiritual gifts or anything controversial, head coverings? I don't got to talk about none of that stuff. I'm focusing on the gospel this morning. Amen. Thank you, chapter 15, for finally arriving. Now, I would remind you, brothers, that is, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached which you received, in which you, what's that word? Stand. I want to remind you of the gospel. I preached it. You received it. Now you're standing in it. Well, here's what we need to do. We need to define the gospel. Amen. We, we need to explicitly say what the gospel is. And let's begin doing that by saying what the gospel is not. Because, because we need to be very clear because this word gospel gets tossed around a lot. It, it's misused in, in a variety of different ways within the church. First and foremost, the gospel is not adherence to a moral code. Amen? Aren't y'all glad that the gospel is not adherence to a moral code? But, it, but a, a lot of times that's what, have you received the gospel means are you doing good things? Uh, are you, do you go to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you have a quiet time? Well, then you've received the gospel. Or do, do you obey all of the Christian rules? Aren't you glad, church family, that that's not the gospel? Because who in here does obey all the Christian rules? We, we are a family of failures, amen? Help me today. Nobody in this room has got it together. Nobody in this room has made it. We all desperately need the gospel, and we are saying yes and amen to the fact that the gospel is not adherence to a moral code. Secondly, the gospel is not self-discovery. So, so if the first view is, is kind of the, the religious view, 
that the gospel is adherence to a moral code. This is more of, the, of a secular view of the gospel. The gospel is not self-discovery, meaning the gospel means you can achieve your dreams. You can be whatever you want to be. You're a good person, and the goal is just to try being a little bit better of a person. Discover your dreams. Find what makes you happy and just go chase after that. That's the gospel. Wrong. That's a terrible gospel. That's a terrible gospel. The, the gospel says you are not a great business. The goal isn't to be a little bit better of a person. The goal is to be a totally transformed person, and only the gospel can do that. Third, the gospel is not something that you do or something that you are. Okay, now th this is where we need to be careful, church family, because we love the gospel. And, and we love sharing the gospel and talking about the gospel. But listen to me very carefully. We are not going to go out and gospel the city. Come on, church, let's go gospel the city. We, we can't gospel the city. We can preach the gospel. In addition, we won't be going out doing the gospel. We can't go out and do the gospel. Jesus did the gospel on the cross. So, so, so we're not going to go out and gospel the city. We're not going to go out doing the gospel. We're not going to be the gospel to somebody. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, we, we are not the gospel to someone. Jesus is the gospel. And so we keep, we're not Jesus. Now, now, again, I understand that I'm being very nitpicky with this language here, but I, again, I think it's very, very important that we understand and be nitpicky because the gospel is so important. Amen? So what is the gospel? Here it is. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the perfect life, substitutionary death, and, vic uh, and victorious resurrection of Jesus. So, so there's a couple different things there. God saves sinners through what? Jesus' perfect life, meaning Jesus earned what you were required to earn, yet you did not earn. That, that's his perfect life. Then, because you didn't earn that perfect life, not, not only are you coming in at zero, you're coming in at like negative 50 bajillion, okay? And so what we need is a sacrificial death, that is the substitutionary atonement that Jesus performs on the cross, okay? That, that is then given to us. And then there is the victorious resurrection. So if he earned it, he paid for it, and then... He defeats it. He defeats sin and defeats death. That is shown in his victorious resurrection. That is the gospel. Or to put it more simply, here it is. That's, a, that's a big, long definition. How about a short one? <clears throat> God saves sinners through Jesus' work. There you go. That, that's pretty straightforward. God saves sinners. How does he save them? Through Jesus' work. Who does the saving? God does. God saves sinners. How does he do it? Through Jesus' Work. That is the definition of the gospel, and that is what Paul wants to remind them of. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received. They received it. How did they receive it? They received it because Paul preached it. Paul preached. The Holy Spirit embodied his preaching and did a heart work on them so that they could receive that work. They received it. And not only did they receive it, in which you stand. What does that mean? How are they standing in the gospel? How do we stand in the, what does that mean? Well, it means that the gospel becomes our life's foundation. It means that the gospel becomes what we truly hope in. 
The gospel brings meaning, purpose, joy, love, all the good things that are out there to get come through the source of the gospel. That is what it means to stand in the gospel. It means that it becomes our foundation, what we build our life onto. It means that we are continuing to believe in this gospel message that Jesus <clears throat> saves sinners. Verse two, and by which you are, that's a curious word, and by which you are being saved. Now, wait a second. I thought I was saved. <laughs> How, how am I be? I, I, I thought I done got saved. I, I don't under, understand how I am continuing to be saved. Well, here's what Paul is getting after. Let, let, let's say you're on a, a giant cruise ship and the cruise ship starts to go down and, and everybody's getting in the, the life rafts and you get off of the sinking ship into the life raft. You have been saved, correct? Yes, you, have, you guys are confused. Yes, if you get off the sinking ship into the life raft, you have been saved. Now, you ain't on the shore yet. <laughs> Y'all with me? You're not, you're not on the shore yet, but you have been saved. And when you get to the shore, you are ultimately saved. In the same way, as we place our faith on Jesus Christ and his atoning work, we are saved. We are justified, but we are not yet glorified. Mean, meaning uh, the, the, the old hymn writer says, I'm just a passing through meaning this is not our home. We are on the way to ultimate salvation when Jesus returns and he sets up his forever kingdom in the new heaven and new earth. That is the ultimate salvation. So we are saved because we truly believe in Christ and we are in the process of being saved as we wait for the millennial reign of Christ. So if you are truly in Christ, you are truly saved and you will ultimately be saved when he returns and sets up his forever ever kingdom. Now, <clears throat> look at what he has to say in addition to that. And by which you are being saved if, uh-oh, ooh, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless, now, ooh, the, these two words can kind of make us uncomfortable. Anybody? If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, I remember being a, a aspiring young theologian, hanging out with some of my Presbyterian friends, and they were talking about the perseverance of the saints. I was like, ooh, that's, that sounds fancy. What is the perseverance of the saints? And I found out that I knew what they were talking about, but I just didn't call it that. See, in the, in the Baptist world, we said, once saved, always. That's, that's what they were talking about, the perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. So as we look at this verse, there, there's an if and an unless that folks like myself that believed in the perseverance of the saints, that believe in once saved, always saved, we, we, we have to take a look at this and understand what the Apostle Paul is, is getting after. Let me just give you the words of Jesus, and, and let's see if Jesus believes in once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints. John chapter 6, verse 37, he says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They will do that because that's the, the Father has chosen them, so they will do that. They, anyone that the Father chooses comes to Christ. And all that the Father gives me, it will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up with me on the last day, for this is the will of my Father. Now, so what does Jesus believe? Does Jesus believe once saved, always saved? He absolutely does. This is what the Bible teaches. Yet there are these curious verses like this that we have to deal with, which I really don't think is an issue at all. So what is, what is it that the Apostle Paul is saying? In light of this, what does this mean? He's saying, if you hold fast, meaning remain a believer, then that is evidence that you are truly saved. If you walk away from the faith and remain away from the faith, that shows that you were never truly saved. This is why uh, John tells us that they went out from us because they were never of us. This is the sad thing that many of us have seen happen in the church. Somebody is faithful. they, They seem to be walking with Christ, yet something happens and they walk away from the church and they never return. What that means is if they never return and Jesus returns or they die, that means that they were never truly saved. Now, what he goes on to say is in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I have been deeply convicted by this verse for so many reasons uh, this week. He begins by saying, for I delivered. I want to ask you this question this morning. What, What have we delivered to others as first importance? What have we delivered to others as first importance? What, what am I talking about? What do I mean? Well, you deliver to other people as a first importance by the repeated words that you say to your spouse, your children, and your coworkers. What is it that you're constantly talking about? What is it that you're constantly bringing up? What, what is your kind of narrative that, that, that you speak into your spouse, your children, and your coworkers? Well, that's what you're delivering as a first importance. Your repeated language, what you're constantly talking about, what's on your mind. This can be clearly seen. What what we're delivering to other people as of first importance can be clearly seen in the text threads we engage in, in the emails that we send, and what we publish to the world through social media. Church family, if you go to your social media accounts and just scroll through, that will show you what you're delivering to the world as of first importance. Oh, help me to know, <laughs> only George is with me today, no, and, that, and that's, that's all right, me and George will get it done. Now, here, here, is, here is what is so incredibly convicting, it, it, the, the, these two words, I deliver to you as of first importance, first importance. So as I stand here this morning, I feel deeply convicted, I, I, I am so certain that the gospel is of first importance, but I want to share with you my heart, church family, Monday makes it really hard for me to believe that. Then Tuesday comes around, and I done forgot all about it. Then I begin to project something that's not actually of first importance to everyone around me when the reality is the gospel is of first importance. Does my bank account, how I spend my time, my calendar, how and where I build relationships, does that show that the gospel is of first importance? Church family, if you're taking notes, we must not only confess that the gospel is of first importance, we must order our lives as if it is so. What is actually of first importance in your life? 
What is actually of first importance? Raising obedient children, getting out of debt, fixing my marriage, getting the promotion, being happy, winning the respect and affirmation of those around me, achieving my personal goals. What is actually of first importance? Who won the election? What direction is the country headed in? What do you think the country's response to the pandemic should be? What is actually of first importance, church family? It's none of those things. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's of first importance. And as Christians, we need to be mindful what we're delivering to other people around us as of first importance. He begins to walk us through the beauty of the gospel. Do not run past what he says next. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins. So much theology hinges on the word for. Christ died for sins. If you're taking notes, substitutionary atonement is the very core of the gospel. Substitutionary atonement, meaning Jesus in my place for my sins. That is substitutionary atonement. So much hinges on that, and it is all wrapped up in that word Four, I wish I had time to expound on these next verses, but I will simply read a set of verses to you which helps us understand and look and peer further into the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians three thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures, meaning that Jesus' death was no afterthought. Jesus' death was no plan B. This was God's plan before the foundations of the earth was laid for his son to come and die for his people to redeem them. What scriptures is Paul thinking of? Well, he's likely thinking of the entirety of the Old Testament as the entirety of the Old Testament points to Christ. Maybe more specifically, he's thinking of Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 4 in chapter 15 says this, that he was buried. Do you see the systematic way Paul is working through this? He, he begins by saying that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried. Why is it important for Paul to include that he was buried? He just said he died. Of course he was buried. Well, is that enough course? If you're taking notes, the burial of Jesus attests to the fact that he was dead. They, they, they didn't lose the body. Nobody stole the body. Uh, he didn't swoon. You know, they were like taking him down from the cross and he's kind of like peeking at him and pretending to be dead. Listen, church family, he was, he was scourged. He was crucified. He was stabbed in the heart 
with a Roman spear, declared dead by a Roman executioner, put into a tomb wrapped up in 100 pounds of linen and spices for three days without medical attention or any help at all. He died and he was buried. And Paul wants to make sure that this is clear. And what he says next changes everything. What he says next has ramifications that reach out through the entire cosmos and rest over the entire universe. He was buried. Then he was raised on the third day. Some, oh, no, 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 no. I'm on, y'all should have. Then he was raised on the third day. You need to get this picture in your mind. The cold, lifeless, brutalized body of Christ, still motionless, lay on the slab, wrapped in linen, no heartbeat, lungs still, brain devoid of activity, limbs frozen. Then by the decree of God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, life was breathed into the body of Jesus. Just as life was breathed into the first man, Adam, so breath of life was given to the final man, Jesus Christ, and he resurrected from the grave. This is the gospel that he is reminding them of. This is what they received, what he preached, what they are standing in. The reality that rests over the entire universe is that the God-man, Jesus Christ, got up out of the grave. And then again, he gives the refrain in accordance with the scriptures. Again, I believe the apostle Paul is thinking of all of the Old Testament, but maybe more specifically, he was thinking of Jonah 117, Psalm 16, 9 through 11, Isaiah 53, 10 through 11, and many, many Others, I know all you type A people try to write down those verses. Go back and listen to the podcast. Verse 5. <clears throat> Verse 5. And he was appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Cephas there is, is Peter. So not only did he resurrect from the grave, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve apostles. So if you're taking notes, if his burial shows that he was really dead, his appearances show that he was really alive. Again, do you see the systematic way that Paul is working through this? He said that he died. Not only did he die, but then they buried him. They buried him because he was really dead. Then he resurrected. Then he appeared to show that he was really resurrected, giving, giving evidence. He's giving evidence for the resurrection. And so what we need to understand here, church family, is that giving evidence or truths about our faith is not an unspiritual exercise. Sadly, as I began to dive into and study apologetics, I had older Christian mentors who, who were saying, you know, I mean, just, just preach the gospel. Don't worry about all that, you know, evidence and, you know, apologetic stuff and all that sort of thing. No, no, no. Giving evidence is something very spiritual. Giving evidence is something that the Apostle Paul clearly here is doing. And so for our lost brothers and sisters, what we need to do is be responsible for our faith and be able to defend it in and out of season. We, we need to know the truths of, of how do we get this scripture? How do we know that this scripture is what they really wrote down? How do we know that Jesus really did resurrect from the grave? How do we know God even exists? All those are deep questions, which the answers are there for if we will simply do the work to go get them. So he's giving them evidence. Listen to this. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That, that, that silly old argument that the disciples, they were just so heartbroken, wishing Jesus would you know, be there, and they, they hallucinated, and all of a sudden we have this you know, doctrine of the resurrection. That's foolishness. 
That's foolishness. 500 people at one time don't all have the same hallucination. That's not how they work. 500 people at one time saw the risen Christ. Not to mention, I don't got time. I do got time. Not to mention, not to mention that the disciples weren't wishing Jesus would come back to life. The disciples were scared to death because Jesus had died. They thought they were next. They weren't waiting around hoping to Jesus would pop up. They were inside of a locked room because they thought they were going to be next. It's a silly argument. Anyway, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Listen to what he says. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why does he say that? He says that so that if you want to go talk to him, you can. You go gather your own evidence. They're still alive. Go talk to them. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James. James. You guys know James? It's his brother, right? Jesus' half-brother. So, so take your mind back to that scene in the gospel to where Jesus is set teaching, and then all of a sudden they come to Jesus and they say, hey, <clears throat> Jesus, uh, your, your family's here. They, they've come to get you. Uh, they, meaning uh, they, they have a straight jacket and a padded car waiting for you outside. They thought Jesus was crazy from the things that he was saying. His brothers did not believe. But then in Acts, we see who is counted among those who believe, his mother and his brothers. Not only that, James goes on to write a book of the Bible, kind of a big deal, he goes on to pastor the church in Jerusalem, meaning week by week, Sunday by Sunday, his brother James is there holding up the Old Testament, reading from the scriptures and saying, that's my brother. Now again, those of you who have brothers, what would that take? What would it take in order for you to say your brother is God? Now, many of you think that your brother has a demon, but you would not say that he is God. It would take a vision of your resurrected brother from the dead in full glory saying to you, told you so. <laughs> then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. To all the apostles there uh, is probably a reference to uh, right before his ascension when they were all gathered together. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all. So as to me, untimely born, he appeared to me also. What, is he, what does he mean, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me? Well, Paul is certainly thinking back to his Damascus Road experience where he has papers in his hands to go kill Christians. These are orders that he has giving him the authority to arrest, to hunt, and to kill Christians. Jesus shows up in blinding light, blinds him, tells him to stop persecuting the church, tells him to stop persecuting him, and that is there his conversion experience. And then Jesus later on appoints him as an apostle. He is one untimely born because all the rest of the apostles saw Jesus during his ministry, spent time with Jesus during his ministry. They, they were there. They weren't converted later uh, like the apostle Paul was. That's why he calls himself one uh, untimely born. And so while uh, he is, it's untimely, it was perfectly in God's timing. Amen. Church family, what we need to see, what we need to know, Paul is reminding them of the gospel and we need to be reminded of the one true gospel. Amen. This is what we need to do week by week as we 
remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. There, there is only one gospel, amen? But, but there's, there's many different gospel nutshells that you can give people. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So, so week by week, here's usually what I say in a sermon. You've heard me say it a thousand times. You probably don't even recognize that I repeat this all the time, but maybe you do. I, I repeatedly say, Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins. I, I say that all the time. My sins on the, he died in our place for our sins. That is, that is what is, is known as a gospel nutshell. I'll, I'll say it another way, that Jesus died the death that we should have died in our place for our sins. So there's, all, there's a ton of ways to say the one true gospel. And let me just rehearse one more with you uh, before we close. Here it is. First, this is my gospel nutshell. Here it is. God is the righteous creator. The gospel begins by God being a righteous creator. Amen. He is, he is righteous. He is sinless. He is wholly set apart. Uh, he, he has never sinned. Everything that he does, all that he says, all that he is, is just. He is righteous and he is the creator. Meaning this, you are created by a righteous God. You are created. Now, listen to me very carefully. If you are created, it follows that you are owned. If, if I create something or if I make something, it's mine. I created it. Church family, that means for us that we are created by God. Therefore, we are owned by God. Therefore, God has the right to place demands on us. That, see, this is the part of the gospel nobody likes. We don't like this part. I'm my own person. I get to do what I want, say whatever I think is right. No, you are not your own, period, paragraph. You were created. By virtue of being created, you are owned, and by virtue of being owned, God has the right to place demands on you, and what God demands is righteousness. First, God is the righteous creator. Second, man is sinful, therefore God is just in his punishment. The Bible teaches that God is a God of love, amen? The Bible also teaches that God is a God of wrath. He comes to punish the unjust, the unrighteous, the sinner, the sexually immoral, those who've committed adultery. He comes to punish sinful men, and it is right to do so because he is a righteous creator. Now, all that's the bad news of the gospel. Here is the good news of the gospel. So if I said God is righteous, is the righteous creator, man is sinful, therefore God is just in his punishment. Third, here's the good news. Jesus is savior and takes the punishment that should have come to us. So as we read the Old Testament, they're, they're killing all these animals. There's all this sacrifice. There's all this blood. What is the deal with that? It's because the wages of sin is death. This is why Paul is so forceful as he shows us that not only did Jesus die, but Jesus was buried. He's insisting that Jesus died. You see, the wages of sin is not a coma. The wages of sin is not six months in the hospital. The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus comes to die in our place for our sins so that we might be justified, so that we might be sanctified, so that we might be adopted into the family of God, so that we might persevere unto the end and ultimately so that we will be glorified with him. This is why Jesus comes to die in our place for our sins. Jesus stands condemned in our place. This is why the old hymn writer says this, man of sorrows, what a name, the son of God who came, 
ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let me close with these questions. First, first question about the gospel. Did you receive it? Second, are you standing in it? Third, is it of first importance? Have you been sitting on the sidelines just kind of observing this Christian thing? Or or have you truly embraced the universe-changing truth of the gospel? Did you receive it? Church family, are you standing in it? Meaning, is it your source of hope? Is it your source of meaning? Are you building your life, your family, your work career, all that you are, are you building it on the foundation of the gospel? Are you standing in it? Last question, is it of first importance? Is your wayward heart often like mine, delivering to the world, even delivering to myself something that is not of first importance? No, church family, that we would receive it, this great gospel message that that gospel community church would be known as a church that stands in the gospel. And may we put it out to ourselves and to the world that the gospel is of first importance. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we stand in the gospel. Lord, that we as a church would promote it as of first importance. Lord, may it be so in our hearts. I pray now for the wayward hearts like mine in this room that have been looking to politics and pandemics and every other little silly thing that comes across our news feeds and our social media streams that seek to capture our heart, that seek to take the place of what is truly of first importance. Lord, we banish those things from that place. And we ask, Lord, that in the throne room of our heart, you would seat yourself, that your gospel would be to us of first importance. Lord, may that great gospel message go out from this church. May that gospel message transform more lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.